chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice uh, in the Lord. Like that's, that's kind of where he kicks off this, this section. We're in a series looking at joy. And the reason we're looking at joy is because Paul keeps going on about joy all the way through Philippians. He keeps talking about it. And here, at the beginning of this section, is no, is no, um, is no exception to that. Again, he kicks off with this idea of rejoice. We want you to be rejoicing. We want you to be finding joy, and specifically finding joy in the Lord. Rejoicing in him, in who he is and what he's done. And the interesting thing about this section is, he's going to say here that the way you go, one of the ways you go about finding joy in the Lord, one of the ways you go about rejoicing in the Lord is through pursuing and finding righteousness. That's what this section's about. It's about righteousness, about where do you find righteousness? How do you go about looking for righteousness? Now, right there, we have some like countercultural chat going on straight away. Because if I was, we, we were talking at Life Group, I don't know if you guys did it in your Life Group if you were around, but Life Groups are just the small groups we meet during the week. We were chatting about this week and I got, I got people in my group just to go, if we were walking down the street and we were to say, what are the top five things that you find joy in, what would, what, what would you say? Uh, and we had some ideas, some people talked about money, some people talked about love, some people talked about relationships, some people talked about you know, just being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. Um, but people talked about a few different ideas. I'll tell you what nobody said righteousness. It just wasn't there. Like nobody was going, I'll tell you where people would say they find joy. They find joy in righteousness. In our, in our culture, we almost see the two things as opposites. Like I can, I, can be, I can live a joyful life or I can live a righteous life. I just can't, the two don't go together. That's not the way Paul sees it at all. This is where Paul goes next in Paul's ongoing quest to communicate his joy and to encourage his readers to find joy He's going to say that righteousness is key. So before we get into what Paul's going to say about righteousness, I just want us to just think about kind of what, what does that word even mean? Like how does the Bible use the word righteousness? What is it that the Bible says about righteousness? When, when Paul says righteousness, what's he talking about? To do this, I just, want to, I just want to read you a few verses from Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10 is a chapter that's all about righteousness. That the whole chapter just keeps coming back to different things about righteousness. And it ends with these words. Let me read them and just, just listen to them and see, see if you can take them in as I'm reading them. The prospect of the righteous is joy. So you can see right there in the Old Testament, there's a link. Righteousness and joy. It's there. The prospect of the righteous is joy. But the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. The way of the Lord is a refuge for the blameless, but it is the ruin of those who do evil. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. From the mouth of the righteous comes the fruit of wisdom, but a perverse tongue will be silenced. The lips of the righteous know what finds favour, but the mouth of the wicked only what is perverse. Now, what, what you start to see there, you only, get, you only get elements of it in that small section, but you start to see that righteousness is about... Yes, it's a source of joy, but it's about the way that we live. It's about the things that we do. Specifically in those verses, it's about the words that we speak. Righteousness is shown in the way that we speak, in the words that come out of our mouths. 
That, that's what's focused on there. But actually, if you were to keep going and look through the Old Testament and see the way that righteousness is talked about, you can see it's about a whole load of things about the way we live. It's about whether we're violent or not. So how do we use our bodies and our physicality? It, it's about how we treat people. It's about how we relate to the poor and the needy in society. These are all ideas that you will see in the Old Testament talked about under that banner of this is what righteousness looks like. <coughs> put, put as simply as I can, righteousness is about the right relating to the world around us. Righteousness is about acting rightly, whether that's in the words we say or how we use our bodies or the way we treat other people or, crucially, the way we treat God. Now, now, if you have that in your head, righteousness is about the right relating to the world, to other people, and to God. If you've got that in, in your head, then the link between righteousness and joy is somewhat self-evident. Like, of course there's a link between those two, because relating to the world around us incorrectly or behaving wrongly towards God or other people, that's not, obviously not going to bring us joy. It's as we do those things in the right way that we go about and we start to find joy. And that's true for a number of reasons. For example, understanding how the world works and how we relate to it properly it is a crucial part of how we enjoy the world we live in. You will struggle to find joy in a winter's day if you don't understand that in order to enjoy it, you should probably wear more than shorts and flip-flops, unless you're Rory. Um, you'll struggle to find joy in that. You'll struggle to find joy in your marriage until you understand that at the heart of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to your spouse. You'll struggle to find joy in friendships if you are constantly angry or deceptive or unkind. You see, it's as we act righteously, relating to those things, the world, other people, as we should, then we're able to find joy in those things. So, of course, there's just a, an obvious link between the righteousness of our lives and the joy we find. But there's more than that going on, isn't there? You'll know this from your life. Because it's not just that doing the right thing naturally makes us enjoy those things. It's not just that. It's also that doing the wrong thing <laughs> makes us feel guilty and there's no joy to be found in guilt. Whilst righteousness not, might not feature very high in a survey, if you were to do a survey of what brings joy, righteousness would never be a box that was ticked. I wonder if guilt would feature a bit higher if you were to ask people what prevents you from experiencing joy in your life. You see, we know the negative of it. We know that unrighteousness and the guilt that associates that does sap joy from our life. After you've done something that you shouldn't have done, after you've uh, acted unrighteously, you will know that, that that guilt that goes along with that impacts a whole load of your experiences of life. In fact, it doesn't only impact your ability to find joy in that thing at that moment, but it can sometimes ripple on for a period of time afterwards. If I speak unkindly to my wife, the guilt of that may reduce the, the joy I find in the relationship with my wife at that moment, 
but it may also reduce the joy I find in all things for the next day or two, depending on what it was and how well we resolve it. Many of us still carry around guilt from years ago, which just gets in the way of the joy we experience in our lives right now. For, for many of us in this room, guilt will be one of the primary barriers to us experiencing joy in our life. And it may be guilt from things you did decades ago. It may be ongoing guilt for things that you continue to do. Righteousness and joy, they're linked because if you're not acting righteously, then you're not relating to the world appropriately. If you're not acting righteously, then you're acting unrighteously and that brings guilt. And we all know how life-sapping and joy-destroying guilt is. But biblically, the biggest problem with unrighteousness is not that it means we relate to the world around us less well, even that it makes us feel guilty. The biggest problem with unrighteousness is that it separates us from a righteous God. That's the biggest problem. That's the biggest reason why you will not find joy in unrighteousness. God is entirely righteous. That means that everything about him is right. He cannot tolerate unrighteousness. He can't coexist with it and maintain his righteousness. And so our unrighteousness makes it impossible for us to know God. It makes it impossible for us to relate to him. And so we can't experience the joy that comes from knowing the God we were created to know. God is the source of all joy. He made this world out of his joy and he longs to share his joy with us. But unrighteousness in the Bible gets in the way of that. It separates us. It means we can't experience that joy. So, so you see, there's a link between righteousness and joy. If you want to live a joyful life, you need to live a righteous life. Because if you're not living a righteous life, you're not relating to the world and to people and to God like you should. If you're not living a righteous life, you're going to have to deal with guilt throughout your life. If you're not living a righteous life, you are separated from the God who, God who is the ultimate source of joy. If you want to live a joyful life, which I'm assuming you do, you've got to live a righteous life. And so Paul, here in this section, he's going to present us with two ways to go about pursuing righteousness. There's two ways you can go about pursuing it. And he's going to give us, uh, he's going to present us with those two. Look with me just again at verses two to six of Philippians three. It reads like this. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Over the past um, week, Sarah and I have, um, Sarah's my wife, and we've been um, watching the HBO series um, Succession. We're only four episodes in. I'm still not entirely sure what it's about or if I like it. But the basic plot of the story goes a bit like this. There's an incredibly wealthy and successful businessman who is suffering some fairly significant health issues, including a heart attack and possibly dying. I'm only a few episodes in. I'm not sure if he's dying or not, but he's definitely not doing too well. And th what this leads to is, is his um, 
very uh, largely incompetent and extremely unlikable children um, taking over the running of his business empire that he's taken on. And so the show follows those children as they try to run this business uh, and generally don't do a great job of it, trying to stop the business from imploding and then the tensions that exist between the three children and everyone they, they come into contact with. Now, one of the things which is noticeable from watching the show is where these children find their worth. What is it that makes them important? Or, or perhaps more accurately, what is it which makes them more important than other people? What is it that makes them somebodies? And so it's in part, it's the family they belong to. They are the, they are the sons and daughters of the, the world-famous and multi-billionaire Logan Roy. We are a Roy, and so we are important. That's, that's part of where they find their importance from. They also find their importance from the fact that they themselves are billionaires. <laughs> So they find some importance from the, the, the amount of money that they have, the fact that they are rich. They are important because they have money, and money equals power. They, they also find some of their importance on the fact that they, are, they, well, that they think they are good at business. Uh, four episodes in, I'm not overly convinced by this yet, but I might get there. <coughs> in one of the scenes, one of the sons is celebrating a, a, a deal he's just done, for, and in it he says... He says this to the, the person he's talking to. He says, I've just pulled off a $4 billion deal, which quite possibly makes me the man. That's his words. You see, you see it's that question, isn't it? What makes them the man? <laughs> what makes you a somebody? What makes you matter? And it, for them, it's a mix of family, resources, and performance. We are Roy's, we are rich, and we are capable. That's what makes them somebody. We see a similar set of characteristics at play just in those verses that I've just read. Here we're presented with a group of people who put their confidence in what Paul describes as the flesh. They find their sense of worth, their importance, and crucially for Paul, their righteousness from their own performance, their own background, their own position. In verses 4 to 6, you just get a, a sense of the kind of things they're thinking of here. It's their ancestry and heritage. They are Israelites. More than that, they're from specific tribes. In Paul's case, Benjamin. It's their religious performance. They're circumcised. They obey the law. They even fight against those who oppose them. To, to use Paul's own language, which he's going to bring up uh, later in this passage, they are aiming for righteousness from the law. Now, here's how that righteousness works. This is option one, how you could go about pursuing righteousness. You set yourself a standard, e.g. the law. The law is your standard. This is what righteousness looks like. You set yourself a standard, and then... You push as hard as you can to meet that standard. And if you attain that standard, you are righteous. And if you don't, then you're not. Now, the specifics for you, as you're sat here, are probably not based on you're an Israelite, 
circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm guessing none of us could tick very many of those boxes. But you can still work on the same basic system of righteousness. A system of righteousness is based on a law. You set some standards uh, and then you try and meet them. You see it in religion, which says if you go to mass, if you do this pilgrimage, if you obey these rules, then God will accept you. But if you don't, then he won't. It's a righteousness based on laws. This is the standard. If you meet it, you are righteous. If you don't, you're not. You see it in self-esteem culture, which encourages us to find our importance in the things we've achieved or the people that we are. So, so righteousness from the law. You perform in a certain way. You have a certain position, certain characteristics. You are righteous. If you don't, then you're not. And what you need to do is convince yourself that you've reached that target. You see it in workplaces where your worth and value is based on your performance. How well do you do those things? That's what makes you matter. That's what makes you important. You see it in conversations where we're all trying to prove ourselves, to demonstrate why we matter, why we're somebody. I, I was thinking this week, where do I, where do I see it myself? Like where, where do I see myself pushing for a righteousness that's based on law, that's based on I set some standards and I attain them? Here's some places I see it myself. I see it in, in my unwillingness to admit when I've done something wrong. I remember looking once just back at my marriage and thinking, how many times have I apologized to my wife? And whatever the answer to that is, it's not enough. <laughs> like that, that's what I can definitely tell you about it. Because every day that'll have been something that I needed to. And it definitely hasn't been every day. Now, why is that? Why is it that I struggle to admit when I've done something wrong. Well, it's because I'm aiming for a righteousness that's based on performance. I don't want to admit that I've done something wrong. I don't want to admit it to myself. I don't want to admit it to someone else. I, I see it in my own personal commitment to being right, or even more than that, to being seen as being right. Uh, one of the ways I think I see it is in like a constant need for validation, for needing people to affirm me, to, to say I'm doing a good job at things, to say I'm doing well. I've recently been um, looking to get a, a book published, and I, and I approached some people to ask them if they wanted to publish it, and we had a bit of a conversation, and at the end of it, they were like, no, we don't. Now, now and that, you know, I was a bit disappointed by that, but why does it impact me? It impacts me because I just want someone else to say, no, you're good at that. that was, that's worth doing, it wasn't that I thought the book was going to change the world. It wasn't that I thought the book was going to make me important or rich. It was just that I wanted validation. It's a righteousness based on performance. I want <laughs> someone to tell me, you did that well, and so therefore, I matter. It's a righteousness by the law. To find my rightness, my worth, my position based on who I am and what I do. And Paul, in this section, is warning you against going that route. If there's one thing I want you to hear this afternoon, it's that. Hear the warning. Don't go, don't go that route. If you're looking for righteousness, do not go that way. Paul is, is kind of stark in his warning. 
Look at what he says at the end of verse 1. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again because it's a safeguard to you. He's trying to protect you. This is Paul looking out for your good, saying, I want to protect you. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. It's strong language. He's warning you as strongly as he can, don't look for righteousness that's based on your performance, that's based on you setting a standard that you then meet. And it's a safeguard because trying to find righteousness that way is a joyless experience. You will never rejoice in the Lord if you push for righteousness based on that. Uh, Here's some reasons why it's a joyless exercise. Number one is it's joyless because trying to find righteousness this way is like chasing the wind. You will never catch it. How do you know if you've ever done enough? If it's based on you meeting some standards, you, you hitting, performing at a sufficient level, how do you know that the level you've hit is good enough? The reality is you never do. And you see this in so many spheres of life. If you think your worth is based on your success, you will never be successful enough to think that you've achieved that. There'll always be another success. Right now, you'll look at your life and think, if I just achieved that thing, then I'd be happy. And you'll achieve that thing, and there'll just be another success further down the line. It's unachievable. You can never hit that standard. If your acceptance from God is found in religious practices, you will always worry that you haven't done enough. And so you'll always be pushing for more. Here's why there's no joy in pushing for righteousness based on performance. You will never have done enough. You'll never have done enough. There'll always be more to do. You'll always feel behind. You'll always feel worried that there's just, I need to do that little bit more, that little bit more. There's no rest there. There's no peace there. You've just got to keep pushing because it's all about performance. No joy in that. It's also joyless. Second reason why it's joyless is because every time you fail, you will feel crushed and worthless. If you determine that your worth is based on your fun-loving personality, every time you fail to be fun-loving, you'll worry that you don't really mean anything anymore. If you feel like your righteousness is based on the fact that you don't smoke anymore, every time you pick up a cigarette, you will feel guilty and excluded all over again. If we set ourselves a performance-based righteousness, none of us will ever live up to it. We'll just never hit it. Even if you set your own standards, you won't get there. And every time we fail, we'll feel guilty and our joy will be annihilated all over again. And here's the third reason why it's joyless. Because it's anti-relational. It's anti-relationships. As we've been reminded of again and again in Philippians, Paul thinks that one of the key ways we find joy is in relationships with other people. It's his relationship with the Philippian church. It's his relationship with Christ. It's his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's where he finds so much of his joy. And the problem with a performance-based righteousness is it's anti-relationship. If your righteousness is based on heritage or performance or religious observance, that will separate you from other people. It will not bring you to them. 
If you think you are righteous because you live a certain way and are a certain kind of person, you will be prone to look down on those who aren't like you. To separate from people who don't attain your level of righteousness. And that is why self-attained righteousness quickly becomes self-righteousness. That's where you end up. I, can, I could point you a million examples of where we see this in society. If you find your identity, significance, your righteousness, your worth in your heritage, then where might that lead you? Well, often where it leads people towards is racism. It's where it leads you. My worth is found in my heritage, my nationality, my identity. And where does that lead you? It leads you looking down, acting unkindly, unlovingly, unsympathetically to those who don't share that. And no one can argue that we don't live in a society where racism is a significant issue. Where your rightness is found in your liberal ideology, we become intolerant of those who think differently from us. I think that's, broadly speaking, what we mean when we talk about woke culture. Where our righteousness is found in our religious observance, we become holier-than-thou types, constantly looking down and criticizing others. I think that's what many people mean when they talk about fundamentalism. You want to know what the heart of so many of our cultural issues are? Racism, whatever, you know, um, fundamentalism, what, whatever it is. So much of it comes down to we're pursuing a righteousness that is self-attained. It's based on what I do, how I perform, and it separates people. It doesn't bring people together. No one looks at those things and thinks... That's what joy looks like. The good news is there is another way. There's another kind of righteousness we can pursue. You're going you're gonna to see it in, in the second bit. Let me read on from verse 7. This is where Paul's going to go. He's going to say, I've warned you against this kind of righteousness, but there's another righteousness you can go after. There's another righteousness you can attain. Here we go. But whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This is where Paul goes from there. He says, I used to run after and pursue that joyless righteousness that was based on my identity and my performance. But now I've found another righteousness. And the righteousness I've found makes that righteousness look like garbage. And what is this righteousness? Well, it's a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. This righteousness is entirely different. It's not based on our performance, so it doesn't lead to superiority. In fact, it's not based on anything about us. In fact, if we could go even more, it's not even ours. It's God's. Like we could take no credit for it. We didn't attain it. It doesn't belong to us. It's given to us. It's God's righteousness given to us through what Christ did for us. That is the heart of the good news or what is referred to again and again in the, in the Bible as the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. 
the gospel is good news, that the righteousness we could not attain is now offered to us free of charge through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived the righteous life which we have never been able to. He always related to the world, to others, and to God rightly. And then on the cross, he paid the price for all of our unrighteousness. It's through knowing Christ that we're able to be declared righteous and come back into relationship with God. It's through knowing Christ that we're able to start relating to the world, to each other, and to God rightly. And this righteousness is so much better than the righteousness we try to attain for ourselves because, number one, it's achievable. If it's based on ethnicity, if it's based on being an Israelite of a certain tribe, sorry guys, just unlucky you were born in the wrong place. If it's based on performance, then shame, you didn't make it. It's achievable, this righteousness, because it's a gift that we accept. It's better because it's achievable, it's better because it's secure. Because it's not based on us, there's nothing we can do to disqualify ourselves from it. There's nothing we can do that, that makes us move from righteous to unrighteous. Because it's not ours. It never was ours. It was given to us. But do you want to know the main reason why Paul says this righteousness is better than a righteousness that we try and attain ourselves? The main reason, reason number one. I've got to be honest, I'd never thought about this until I until I read this passage. This is why Paul says this righteousness is better than self-attained righteousness. It's because this righteousness enables you to know Jesus. Self-attained righteousness, even if you got there, you don't know Jesus from it. You don't get to know him. You don't get to live with him. You don't get to enjoy him. Even if you could do it, even if you could, could achieve that righteousness that we attained ourselves, it would still be garbage compared to this righteousness. Because in this righteousness, you also get to know Jesus. You also get to have Jesus living in your life. Why does he say, it's, why does he say this is so much better? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Why would I want a righteousness without Christ? There's that, there's that bit in Lord of the Rings where... Arwen, I haven't talked about Lord of the Rings for like at least two weeks, so it's time. Right, there's that bit in Lord of the Rings, right, where Arwen and Aragorn are like, they want to get together, but she's an elf and she lives forever. And in order for her to be with him, she's got to give up immortality in essence. And her basic argument is, why would I want immortality if it's immortality without Aragorn? Like, that, this is the equivalent of that. Why would I want righteousness if it's righteousness without Jesus? Without knowing him? without knowing his love for me, without knowing his generosity to me, without getting to talk to him, without getting to hear him talk to me. Why would I want that righteousness? It's garbage compared to a uh, righteousness with Jesus in it. So what do we do? Let me just read the last verses. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So what do we do? What does it look like to live a life not looking for our own righteousness, but living as a recipient of Christ's righteousness? Here's what we do. We follow the path of Christ, suffering and death, followed by a glorious and joyful resurrection. Let me explain. If you want to find the joy of a righteousness attained through faith in Christ, a righteousness which is a free gift, you first have to die to something you love. You first got to die. If you want to be raised to that righteousness, it starts with death. Can't, you can't be raised till you're dead. Like that, that's kind of a prerequisite. This is what you got to die to. You got to die to your self-righteousness. You've got to die to it. And you don't want to because <laughs> you love it. That dying will be painful. You'll have to die to the pride you find in your background or your identity. You'll have to die to your working class hero roots or privileged middle class background or whatever it is. You'll have to die to the superiority you feel based on your intelligence or popularity or personality. You'll have to die to the righteousness you cling on to based on your morality or your church attendance or your religion. And dying to those things will hurt. Because we cling on to our pride. We cling on to our superiority and our righteousness. So letting go of them, it's like a tear. It feels like a significant loss. If you're, if you're someone here, sat here today, and you're, you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus, you, you don't know him, you've never come to find a righteousness that's not your own, I wonder, I wonder how much of it comes down to you just clinging on to your self-righteousness. Let me give you some examples of how you might see this. I don't need this because I'm as good as those guys anyway. You know what? You may well be. You may well be as good as any Christian, as moral. It's just self-righteousness, though. You'd have to let go of that if you're going to know Jesus. You might look at Christians and go, well, they only believe because they're not as clever as me. We may not be. Plenty of people who are cleverer than me who aren't Christians. But that's just self-attained righteousness. And you'd have to be able to let go of that if you're going to know Jesus. You might look at the things that Christians have done throughout history and think, I'd never do that. How could I ever join and be like a Christian when you look at the things they did? It's just self-attained righteousness and you'd have to lose it if you don't know Jesus. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're just clinging on to some self-attained righteousness and I'd just encourage you, don't. There's no joy there. No joy to be found in just pushing into that. But maybe you're someone here today and you are, you are a Christian. You do know Jesus. You've, you've found that righteousness that is his. You know a righteousness not your own. But it's, it's possible and easy to be a Christian, to know that, and yet be unwilling to kill our self-righteousness. And so we rob ourselves of the joy which can be ours in finding a righteousness which is not our own. We cling on to our moral superiority, looking down on others. 
we still think that our security comes from our performance. And so we oscillate between false security and crushing insecurity. You want to find the joy of this righteousness that Paul's talking about here? Well, keep putting to death your self-righteousness. That's what you need to do if you're a Christian here today. Because it's only as you die to the righteousness you're trying to attain that you can really find the joy which comes from the joy that comes from the righteousness which is in Christ. If if you're a Christian here today and you think, why don't I experience the joy that Paul is talking about here? Why don't I experience the joy of knowing this righteousness? Why does this not lead to the rejoicing of verse one? Rejoice in the Lord. Here's why I think it is for many Christians. We want resurrection without death. We want resurrection without death. We want to dodge the cross. But it's only as we die to self-righteousness that we can then be truly raised to Christ. And as we find this, we do what Paul does. We look forward and we press on to that day when we will not just be declared righteous as we are now, but will be finally made righteous. The righteousness which is ours in Christ is effective now. It declares us righteous now. But we still fail to relate rightly to the world, to each other and to God. But one day, the righteousness which is given to us as a gift now will be ours not just as a status, but as our lived reality. When we're welcomed into the new heavens and the new earth, when we finally relate to that world, to each other, to God rightly. Let me pray.